Uh, all right. We also heard from Morgan Van Lerdes. Killing it. Just nailing it every time. First try. <sighs> Zero deaths. I, I leap in with both feet before I've practiced saying the name, and it doesn't work every time. <laughs> Welcome to episode 327 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, big one today. Yo. <laughs> Marshall, they're always big ones. It's true. Every time we talk, it is a big one. Mm-hmm. Got lots of follow-up and got a cool topic today, so I'm excited. Let's just say this. We we discussed for two hours before we pressed the record button. So we have like this built-up energy that we are ready to unleash upon the world. Are you with me? (laughs) Let's go. Okay, let's dig in. First things first, we got some new supporters this week. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Much appreciated. Big shout outs to Aaron Hein, Lauren Chilcote, Chris Martin, Lauren Mosenthal, Ricky Salisbury, TT underscore 55. We've already done that one. TT underscore 55 subscribed again. So if you're listening, TT... Uh, we got a new dollar subscription from you on December 12th. And uh, Greg Wilkinson, most recent patron at time of recording. So thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you don't know, we're a listener-supported podcast. You can find out more at patreon.com slash design details. Thank you, everyone. You're, you're, you're making it happen. Making dreams come true uh-huh. one doll hair at a time. <laughs> we're also supported this week by Sisu. Sisu is looking for a thoughtful and data-savvy designer to help build the next generation of analytic software. You can find out more at sisu.ai. That's S-I-S-U dot A-I. We're also supported by Flywheel, a delightfully designed managed WordPress hosting platform thoughtfully built for busy creatives like you. Streamline your workflow with their slick platform and sweet set of workflow tools perfectly made for designers. You can get started at getflywheel.com slash design details. You know, if you don't have a blog, you should have a blog. If you're going to have a blog, you should host it on Flywheel. So thank you, Flywheel and Sisu, for supporting the show this week. Yes, thank you. Keeping the lights on. Keeping the lights on indeed. All right, we have so much follow-up. We will try and breeze through it because I know that this not is not the point of the show. Yeah. But boy, oh boy, you'll tweet it at us a lot this week. All right, first things first. We got a direct message from listener Mukul Argarwal. So sorry about fucking saying people's names. <laughs> Uh, Muku listened to episode 323 where we discussed designing social proof and found it lacking. Oh, some inbound criticism. Thank you. But we never say anything wrong, Brian. I don't know what. Uh, have we made a mistake ever? Can't possibly. Uh, no, Mukul has a great point. So Mukul uh, said we weren't talking, we didn't end up digging deeper onto systemic solutions. But uh, what I wanted to call it was Mukul linked us to a podcast episode that I followed up and listened to. Uh, it's called Rock the Voter, uh, is the name of the episode, from a podcast called Your Undivided Attention. And Your Undivided Attention is a podcast that's released by the Center for Humane Technology. I, I know one of the hosts of this episode in particular was Tristan Harris, who's the co-founder of this. And uh, Tristan has been spending a lot of time talking about just social media and uh, the effects on the world. But anyways, this podcast episode was buck wild. They interviewed a former Cambridge Analytica employee 
talking about social media, advertising, and political marketing, and it was insane. So anyways, um, yeah, Mukul pointed out that we never really got that deep in our social proof episode back in 323 and uh, just wanted to pass along this link. So I highly recommend it. It was a great podcast episode. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Listen to somebody else do it better than we did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now we got some tweets. First tweet from Danny Hagen says, I loved your talk about design tools, but had a question. Where do you think the line is between a design system and a design language? Are they two words for the same thing? Or do you think a design system is a more rigid set of rules where the design language is a more general rule set that the designer can play around with? I think the word system conveys a more closed and rigid set of rules focusing more on speed where language is more exploratory. Uh, I don't know if I have a good answer to this. I just wanted to run it by you, Marshall. What's the difference between a design system and a design language? Do you have an articulation? Yeah, I um, my <laughs> I, I only have like my reaction to that. I don't know. There's probably you know a specific definition for these things yeah. uh, that I refuse to look up. But my 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 intuition here is that if you're going to be talking about a design language, you're you're talking more about a vibe, like the the feel of the thing. Yep. And if you're talking about a design system, yeah, that that does feel more rigid, or at least like we've already figured out what the language is and we've translated that language into these components. So I guess that would be the the difference. Yeah, I could see that going the other way too, right? Like the language is the expression of a system. The system is the implementation of that language. uh, Yeah, what you said, but it could go both ways. But they would both be interlinked in this scenario, right? Like the system is the manifestation of the language. Yeah, I think language comes before system. I don't know. This is a really hard question. And maybe there is no difference. And I don't know. Maybe they're synonymous, interchangeable. I don't don't know. But typically, I don't think in terms of design language so much. And if I do think in terms of design language, my my brain associates that with more styling than implementation. So I would say language is more style, more vibe, and and system is the, the manifestation of that vibe into usable pieces. Yeah, I wonder if like uh, if the gut reaction of a brand designer or a marketing designer would be what you've described. Like they, but they would associate more closely with the language part, and they would have a, a deep articulation for what a design language is. Whereas we probably have a deep articulation for the system because that's what we work in day to day. Good question, though. Probably didn't answer it well, but we try. Gave it our best shot. All right. We also heard from. Stuart Favretto is now my Favretto person. Uh, did you just make a pun, Brian? I tried. <laughs> did it work? Yeah, it, it almost went past me. It's so it's such an infrequent event, but uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. That was good. Subtle, smooth, much like Stuart's uh, demo. So, okay, last week when we were talking about design tools, I posed a challenge to everybody who is using Figma Auto Layout. Can you design a component that has a dynamic inset bottom border for table cells? And Stuart did it, and it seems as though the trick is to use uh, a box shadow instead of a border. Go figure. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. So uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, but Stuart has a link to a demo file if anyone wants to play with a like iOS table view with a dynamic inset bottom separator. I understand what you're saying. So it's a, a inner shadow up from the bottom, zero X negative one Y or something. Yeah, yeah. So I, I realized my mistake. My mistake is up until now, I've been using individual layers for the bottom border because I needed individual layers to have a dynamic inset. Mm-hmm. But the solution is 
no new layers at all. You just have like the frame of your text area and that text area has the inner shadow, which by nature being only the text area will be dynamic. Makes sense. That seems to make sense. Good job, Stuart. You solved it. You fixed the problem. You're smarter than Brian. Ah, thank you. I'm going to rebuild all my components again. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Stuart. All right, next week. Uh, Greg Wilkinson, our most recent patron at the time of this recording, tweeted at us. Do you want to read this one, Marshall? Yeah, I'll read this one. Okay, so uh, Greg Wilkinson says... Happy to become a member this week after your pistachio conversation. Hashtag fuck shelled pistachios. Hashtag that's no fun. Agreement, Greg. You're welcomed warmly into this family. You will fit right in, sir. Also, I'm just going to say that hashtag fuck shelled pistachios contains one tweet. How is that not trending? (laughs) Well, we did not get it trending, but that's our new challenge this week. Can we get fuck shelled pistachios to trend on Twitter? (laughs) We have the single tweet right now. Only one person on Twitter has ever used that hashtag. Think about that. Yeah. Hundreds of millions of people have come and gone on this internet website called twitter.com. And not one person has said hashtag fuck shelf pistachios. <laughs> Until now, we, we're inspiring Until new now. creations. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm, what Greg is talking about here, uh, he's referring to the stinger from last episode. Oh, uh, at the very end of the episode, if you didn't listen all the way to the end, you might not know what he's talking about with fuck shelled pistachios. But every now and then we, we put a little snippet of the show that didn't actually make it into the body of the show after the end credits. So you got to stick around to get those those old gems. Yeah. So uh, if you don't know, now, you know, stick around. I've even started putting them as chapters uh in the podcast so oh that's kind of cheating but there are no excuses now brian (laughs) all right we also heard from will vaughn said love the episode but was surprised at no mention of azure the og purveyor of auto layout dynamic content and interactive prototypes with logic it definitely missed the boat on visual design and animation polish but was years ahead of its time will you are not the only person that said we missed azure and i am embarrassed to admit I had never seen Azure. Nope. I, I'm not even sure we're pronouncing it correctly. Is Azure? Azure RP9, powerful prototyping and developer handoff. It is a design tool that I've never seen before. Available, it looks like, for Mac and uh, PC mm-hmm. with powerful prototyping, blending analysis and design, bridging the gap with development. I'm just reading their marketing page. This isn't an ad. This isn't an ad, but I haven't used it. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe we have to search wider. But here's here's an interesting thought, Marshall. I, I've been developing some strong opinions about the landing pages of design tools. Mm-hmm. And one of said opinions is that it seems important to me that a design tool's landing page presents itself as aspirational. And what I mean is, show me what I could be creating if only I had access to your tool. I think Framer does a really great job of this. Framer and Sketch are the only two that are in that league right now of inspiring me like, oh my goodness, that's possible with your tool. And Azure, as I'm looking at the landing page, is struggling with this, I think. like There's even some small things like one of their marketing page images of their UI, like a screenshot of their UI has a typo in it. And like, this isn't aspirational to me. This doesn't show care and polish and quality. And I apply that feeling onto 
like what would be possible to make with it is, oh, I can make something that is unpolished and a little bit sloppy. And that's totally unfair of me, but this is how I'm interpreting the marketing of tools right now. Do you agree with that, Marshall? Am I being too harsh here on on like marketing images? Yeah, I mean, uh, if, you, if you look at framer.com, this is like the gold standard, right? It's like above the fold, here's a GIF showing a, a fast version of you doing all sorts of crazy stuff that doesn't seem like it would be possible in other tools. And then a preview showing you, you know, exactly what you just did. Like, this is what it should be, right? Or this is kind of what I want to see. I'm very similar to you when it comes to that, Brian. Okay, cool. Thanks, Will, for the tweet and for pointing us in the direction of a new tool. All right, we also got a tweet from Morgan Vanderleest, who said, I used to listen to Design Details when it first started, drifted away for a while, but I follow Brian and recently decided to listen again. Really enjoy his and Marshall Box interactions. Looks like I have another regular to add to the queue. Aww. Ah, yeah. And also asked that we very kindly stay away from Mandalorian spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I cut out a bunch of shit that was way spoilery that you didn't even hear. So, oh, don't worry. There you go. Look, we're already doing the work. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, we heard from Cameron Campbell tweeted at us Love episode 326. Another defense of design tools is iteration. Once the feedback loop with stakeholders begins, it's going to be faster to execute on them in Figma. I do both and would hate having to refactor code for every request early in the design process. Yeah. 100%. Like just the speed of iteration in a drawing tool. Uh, I think, yeah. But then when you get to that handoff process, it's like you have a bunch of rectangles, but agreed. Otherwise, <laughs> that's my job. Making rectangles. Slang and wrecks. <laughs> All right. Friend of the pod, Gabriel Valdivia. Ooh, we've got a little bit more to dig into here. Okay. Gabe says, something we often miss when talking about skeuomorphism. It isn't just decorations that connect your app to an IRL analog. It also connects your app's UI elements to each other, creating a universe of rules, logic, and patterns for interacting with digital products. As we've moved away from skeuomorphism and scoffed at leather textures, we can sometimes forget how to make UI elements internally consistent, e.g. what is the foreground and background, where do elements go and come from when they're off screen. And Gabe says, Perhaps skewmorphism was less a crutch to help audiences adopt the iPhone and more of a starting point for designers to create cohesive experiences. I think that's a good point. Like, yeah, two-way road. And, and Gabe has a give of why not both. Like, it's probably both, right? Like, yeah, I buy that. If you're designing a game center, right, and you lean in on the metaphor of a poker table with the felt background, that leads you down a path of other elements that you'll have to design, right? Like, what does the menu look like when it's next to a poker table? Yeah, good point. Does anything jump out there to you? Uh, no, that's a great point. And, and I, th- I think that's in line with or his first point of, you know, it's not just about ornamentation. It's also about how things present themselves, which is why I brought up the, the sheets. The modals, yeah. Yeah, the idea of, like, the presentation of a screen from a direction is an indication of which direction it will leave at you know totally so yeah I, I, yeah i think it's a two-way street and very much agree good point gabe way to call us out all right we also heard from mateo graton who says as usual love the topics and the way you manage them this time i'd like to add a few tiny things to your perspective on design tools all right here we go we're getting new perspective please number one tools are not only designed for mobile apps or web design they're designed to be able to manage any GUI. I haven't heard the word GUI in a while, but yeah, that's cool. <sighs> You're, uh, it's a good point. Like we are, 
definitely skewed towards just the way that we use these tools. But you're 100% right. Like there are people that are designing probably some crazy shit to be used on a like refrigerator screen and that's being designed in Figma for sure mm-hmm. or Sketch. It's a good point. All right, number two, based on the previous one, how can you think to export or run apps for any different coding language? How could we envision something that works perfectly for any device? Uh, yeah, good point. That is a goal that will not be realizable anytime in the near future. Yeah, I think you have to focus on the largest use case here, which just happens to be websites and mobile apps. Like, yeah, there's going to be people building for large platforms on all sorts of other interfaces. But if we're trying to get the most bang for our buck in terms of investing in the tool, maybe maybe it's just that iOS, Android, and HTML and CSS are like the gold standard of desired output targets. Yep. Or at least in the platform brawls of the last decade or two, those are the ones that have come out on top. Yeah. All right. Third, what about performance when autocode would be extracted from the design tool itself? Usually developers are good at improving performance, uh, not only writing the code. Would the auto export of code be something that could speed up or slow down the developer's work? Oh, Brian. Um, oh, Dreamweaver. <laughs> I was going to say Dreamweaver, you asshole. I was going to bring you. it up. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, do you remember an application called Dreamweaver that spit out the worst HTML ever? <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Especially considering the the complexity of some of the screens I've designed, like the the automated output almost certainly is not the best way to do it. I mean, that's my problem with this desire to output anything to like a coded interface is it's missing so many of these side problems that impact the user experience, loading states, error states, what happens on slow internet connections. And then as you've pointed out, just even raw performance, like our animations occurring at 60 frames per second, because there there's the right hierarchy of elements, like, or, or have we structured things in such a way that it's over rendering and animations are lagging, right? Mm-hmm. Like these feel like problems that maybe a design tool could solve an export, but it seems way more effective to have like an abstraction at just the entire application layer for here's how we handle error states and here's how we've systematically made animations performant. And then the design tool is is the elements that sit on top of that framework. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's, I'd, I don't know how a successful application of any sort makes it out the door without having been heavily massaged by humans, right? Like, yeah, there's, I I can't imagine short of like super smart AI figuring this shit out in the same way that AI has been able to figure out um, aerodynamics through iteration after millions of iterations. Have you seen this before? Like AI designing aerodynamic shapes and wind tunnels? No, but it sounds cool. Yeah, so like short of something like that happening where it can work through iterations to find out the most performant version of code, I don't see this happening anytime soon. It just it needs so much human intervention for it to be optimal. Yeah. That until you have an AI that's as good as or better than a human at figuring out that optimization, yeah. it's not worth bothering. Or until the abstractions at the like platform level or the computing power just don't matter or we solve network connectivity or we have like quantum computers and it's like okay cool we don't have to worry about a lot of this shit anymore Mm -hmm. all right and finally uh mateo left us with a couple links to some other design tools that people might want to check out first one is called mint data 
which is a better way to create software with the familiarity of a spreadsheet. I'm not sure what's up with that, but basically you can have a spreadsheet that lets you create software and you can link screens in the same way you link spreadsheets and you can use the spreadsheet to create application logic. And then from this, you can push to mobile and desktop web. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Holy shit. That's crazy. I I mean, a spreadsheet as like a data model, sure. But as doing transitions and, you know, logic and everything, that sounds crazy. It seems great for designing tabular screens. Like if you are have an interface based upon tables. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. We're just, Matt's calling out these uh, links. The first one is Mint Data and the second one is called Amino Editor. This one feels somehow more intuitive to me. Amino Editor, it... uh, the tagline is make visual changes to any website with CSS. And it looks like kind of what I described. Like I should be able to poke at anything on a web page, like a button or some text. And I can open a visual editor that lets me mutate the properties of that thing and then have those mutations pushed back into my code editor. So I'm live. Have direct manipulation over the website. Yep. So uh, we'll have links to these in the show notes, but this is coming from uh, Mateo's recommendation. So thanks for the tweets. Yeah, thanks. And for the ensuing conversation okay and our next tweet is from listener denny he says i'm not a gamer but i was really excited to hear y'all discuss video game design related to our industry do you guys think conveyance can be implemented properly in ui design and then he links to an ego raptor video if you're familiar with ego raptor he makes he started out on Newgrounds making uh stupid animated videos god remember that website newgrounds.com oh my yeah dude lord this is high school for me but this video is very good and actually i almost mentioned it when we were talking about this stuff in the episode that he's referring to link in the show notes okay so what's what's conveyance good question let me look it up Conveyance is a technique for teaching the rules of a game and the pattern of its dynamic to the player without specifically telling her what to do. The specific example that's referenced in this video is from Mega Man X. Uh, it's it's a very good video. It's it's a great user experience uh, homework to do to like learn about how to to do this method of conveyance or telling someone how to do something without explicitly telling them how to do it. Yeah, this looks awesome. This video also has 14 million views. So uh, yeah, no joke. That's crazy. So the question was, do you think conveyance can be properly implemented in UI design? Absolutely. And I think maybe the best example of this is, have you ever seen an app that you can maybe swipe on a table view cell and uh, to let you know that the cell bounces to reveal like the delete button behind it. You know what I'm talking about? I think YouTube Music actually does this for playlists. Well, then that you could point to examples on the the lock screen, right? Like yeah, the the home indicator bounces. Is that conveyance, or is that just a is that just a signifier? Yeah, maybe we don't have a good example. I don't know. This is this is basically Inception, right? Yeah. Okay, well, we have a good video for conveyance in video games that we can send people, so link in the show notes. Great question, Denny. I don't think I answered it well, but good thing to bring up. All right, last but not least, if you don't know about Bonus Land, you're done missing out. Yeah, you're done goofed. Last week, we released Bonus Land Episode 2. Two, two, two. Which is the uh, bonus content for all of our Patreon supporters, and we heard from Michael Kneprath, friend of the pod, this will be our teaser for anyone who's not subscribed and hasn't heard Bonus Land Episode 2. Michael says, shocked 
by the latest design details bonus land in which the boys reveal they're both getting cyber trucks. Oh, shit. That clickbait. <laughs> oh, that clickbait. <laughs> Don't you want to know? All right. <laughs> thanks for listening, Michael. Is he telling the truth? Is he lying? Is he, yeah. is he pulling your leg? Who knows? You have to listen to find out. Did Marshall and I both actually pre-order cyber trucks? Go find out this week on bonus land, bonus land, bonus land. For the low, low price of one buck a month. Okay. We have just spent a considerable amount of time going through all of your tweets at us. And all I can say is thank you for tweeting at us. We enjoy it. Uh, Let us know if this was too much. (laughs) Probably. I think we ended up having fun conversations about several of them. So it felt on topic. But uh, yeah, we get a lot of tweets these days. Or apparently last week we got a lot. So thank you. Engagement, Brian. I love the engaged listeners. That social media engagement. Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) That's kind of a nasty word now. But I mean it in the good way of like they're involved. Yeah, we're we're being just silly at this point. (laughs) Okay, should we talk about one one topic before we leave people disappointed? Yes, one tiny, tiny topic. One tiny topic. (laughs) One tiny, easy topic that will be super fast to get through. We're going to knock this out. Okay, Uh, naming conventions. Let's talk about naming conventions, Brian. This should be easy. Naming things is hard. (laughs) Like, How do you name stuff in a way that it is intuitive and obvious and people besides you could dig through it and piece it together without, you know, needing documentation. It's kind of the dream. I think one of the ways that we can we can tackle this that will be most applicable to our listeners would be the naming of components. Because whether you're creating a design system for a bunch of people to use or not, you're probably going to be making some master components that you use locally and you'll want to organize those so they're not just a bunch of junk sitting around named whatever. Yep. So uh, how would you organize those? Well, Typically in Sketch and uh, historically in Figma, there's been a practice of using slashes to denote hierarchy so that you can nest things. And both Sketch and Figma respect that naming convention. So they will see your slashes and raise you a folder. No, they'll see your slashes and, <laughs> and, and assume those are folders and put them appropriately so that you can properly navigate through your hierarchy as you have defined it. But I think one of the interesting things that's going on with Figma right now is they've set it up in such a way that you no longer need to use the slash naming. It's merely the nesting within frames that can denote the hierarchy of your components. So for example, if I have two icons, icon A and icon B, uh, normally I would would call those icon slash A, icon slash B, right? But... What I can do in Figma now is if I create a frame named icon and then place the master components for icon A and icon B within that frame, they will automatically show up nested under icon in my assets list, Uh Yep. which I think is a really smart way of doing it because this way I can refactor the structure of my components on the fly and I don't have to rename anything And when I insert those components into mocks as instances, the instance name isn't the entire fucking breadcrumb hierarchy of that of that component. (sighs) Um, It's just the name of the component, which most of the time I end up renaming the damn thing anyways and deleting all the slashes and stuff. Right. Yeah. That's how I do it. Brian, do you have opinions? Yeah, I just feel like the slash naming is a hack that features have been built on top of you think it's a tail wagging the dog i think it is because 
you're basically forced into a position where you are constantly having to evaluate the the appropriate order and and what ring of features this component fits into. So for example, let's say you're designing an app for iOS, Android, and web, okay? On iOS and Android, you're also supporting light and dark mode. Mm-hmm. And probably on the web now too. Aha. And on the web. Okay, so you have light and dark mode across all three. And then... Uh, Let's just say for an example component, you have a button, right? Let's start simple. Okay. Do you start your grouping by platform? Do you start your grouping by theme or mode? So dark mode, light mode. Do you start it by uh, the component name? And then even within buttons, like you could have primary buttons, secondary buttons, outline buttons. Uh, do Where does the variant of a button fit in? So for me, where I've landed in, I can't, it's very frustrating that I've landed here, but it's the best thing I can come up with is I go component name first, variant name second, so button primary, button secondary. And then I do platform third, so button primary Android. And then I do the mode as the last level of hierarchy. So the final hierarchy I end up with is button slash primary slash iOS slash dark. That fucking sucks. It's so confusing. The reason I chose that is because when I'm designing and I'm in flow, I'm already in the context of a platform. So I don't want that first. So my mind says, oh, I need a button for this part of the interface. So button being the first thing I grasp for makes sense. Mm -hmm. But it's just everything after that seems really annoying to grapple with the hierarchy. Like uh, especially it feels bad to end with light or dark or even ending with iOS, Android, web, because it makes swapping between the higher up variants, like swapping between secondary and primary or link or outline, like swapping between that level variant, Mm -hmm. it makes it really challenging because you have to dig through a bunch of nested layers or nested menus. Yeah, you have to jump up the tree and then back down a different branch. You have to jump up the tree two layers to get to a variant of the root component, which is what you're trying to modify. Mm Mm-hmm. Does all this make sense? Did I articulate that okay? Why this is frustrating? Yeah, I think I understand. And this is probably going to vary depending on the product or the person, right? But one thing I can suggest, one little pro tip is I would start removing slashes uh, if you find that it's getting too deep. So to build off of your example, I would remove the last slash. So it would end up being button slash primary slash iOS light and iOS dark would be in the same folder together, right? So iOS space light. Yeah. That way, when you switch from light to dark, they're right next to each other, they're bundled together, and you don't have to dig up. Like, I would never put light and dark at the top, right? Right. If anything, I would put maybe the platform near the top, but I think a way that you could go even further is to remove the the light and dark entirely and just set up your components in such a way that you can override the style so that you only have one button primary. And if you're doing it in such a way that you're trying to adhere to the platform specifics like typography and corner radius and, and color palette and all that stuff, it makes sense to have different table view cells and and different button styles and everything. So it is important to have separate iOS and Android things if that's your goal, or if you're going for just a company style that is the same across all platforms, then you don't need to even differentiate between iOS, Android, and web. It's the same button everywhere. 
right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is one of the advantages of working at Google. It's like <laughs> we just have the same style everywhere. So it doesn't matter if it's iOS or Android. Those mocks uh, translate pretty directly aside from the home indicator and the status bar. Everything else in the middle is the same. Yeah. Same same meat, different bread, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. I think, you know, as you're going through this, a couple more things come to mind. So one is I also think that the light and dark mode, you're suggesting removing them, but I think it, they should, they can be removed, uh, not necessarily because you have override ability, but because your color system handles that automatically for you. Yeah. If you have a plugin like you do, Mr. Galaxy Brain over there. Well, I think, I mean, this is just how light and dark mode work in practice, right? Like you have to have some functional name for text that indicates that in light mode, it's black and in dark mode, it's white. So you might call that text primary. So in that world, text primary encapsulates the behavior of dark mode and light mode. It says which color it should be in which. And if if you use all of your colors in that way, then you end up in a world where designing only in light mode it, it's inferred that it will work in dark mode, right? Because mm-hmm. each color you've used encapsulates the dark mode variant. Mm-hmm. So then you could chop off the light and dark at the end. You don't have to worry about overrides. You could just design it in light mode unless you're trying to do something specific in dark mode and you need to like maybe test or tweak some colors. But in theory, then you could just design in light mode because your color system handles the dark mode variation. And then I'm wondering, could you just, what if you got rid of that uh, slash between button and primary? And what if you just had I guess it maybe would be repetitive, but you would shorten the hierarchy. So you'd have button primary slash Android, button primary slash web, button primary slash iOS, assuming you have variants uh, of your design system within each platform, which is probably more common. Like Android buttons tend to be a little bit different than iOS buttons. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point of, and and this is kind of what I was getting at earlier too, is like uh, flattening the hierarchy where it makes sense especially avoiding small cul-de-sacs, I guess is one way to put it. Like like a tree that ends with one or two options at the very end of it is not a good organization. Like you've gone overboard in that organization. Mm-hmm. You should maybe step it back a little bit and consider flattening slightly, especially at the ends of those branches on the twig level. Or further up on the branch, like you said, like combining button and what type of button it is all together. I tend to uh, prefer to have a single word, if possible, on each of those things. So like, I, I would probably still stick with button and then primary, because you're going to have more than one or two button styles. Most likely, it's probably going to be three, four, or five. And when that happens, I, I tend to like nest those down a level, because button is going to live at the same level as a bunch of other shit, right? And this leads into another aspect of this, which is collective components versus atomic components. Does that make sense? I would say composed. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Here, let me say an example and tell me if I have it right. You could have a component that is on iOS, like the bottom handle, so that black or white bar. Mm -hmm. And then you could have a component called tab bar, that is your bottom tabs of your interface. But those will rarely, if ever appear in isolation. So what you really want is a composed component called just tab bar that includes your bottom handle. Mm-hmm. Same way you might have a status bar and a nav bar, but those should almost always be composed together. Um, do I do I have that right? That, that, that's an interesting point. That's not the one I was trying to get at though. Oh, okay. Let's go back to our best friend, the table view cell. 
in the iOS design system or the library that they provide, the way a table view cell is laid out is it's several different smaller components in a larger component. So like you were saying, like composed things, but the way it's laid out is there's a left accessory that can be swapped out with a bunch of different variations and there's a right accessory. So for example, left would be title, title with a subtitle, title with a placeholder. On the right side would be like uh, disclosure, detailed with disclosure. Toggle. Toggle, yeah, exactly. There's yeah. all these different variations. So there's only one table view cell for the most part where it just has the title and a disclosure arrow, but you can swap out those things. But the question is, where do you put all that left accessory, right accessory stuff? Does that live at the same level as as all of your other composed components? Because you'll never just have a left accessory in isolation or a right accessory in isolation. They are always part of this composed component. So how do you nest those in the structure? And the way Apple has decided to do it, or the way Apple's designers have decided to do it, is they have a root level item called X or underscore. I forget exactly what it is. I think it's like lowercase x. And then everything else after that kind of mimics the hierarchy of the root, but it's down one level. And so all of your accessories, everything that wouldn't be used in isolation is inside that x folder. Mm. Does that make sense? Miscellaneous, utilities. Yeah, it's basically misc. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you don't want to have that stuff mingled in with all of your composed components because those are the ones that are actually going to go into mocks. You want all of your other stuff to be grouped separately so that no one confuses those with things that you would just drop in on their own. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for me, I think I've almost go overboard with my table view cells where I have a single one that contains a bunch of hidden like subgroups. Like I have a hidden toggle, I have a hidden chevron or disclosure arrow. I have hidden groups with like a label sublabel. Uh, sublabel label like i have hidden groups for all that shit but that means i have only a single list view or list cell component that might be the wrong direction but that's how i have set yeah up. you don't have any subcomponents. so instead of using swapping you're using hiding yes. and showing yeah yeah i i kind of prefer the swapping aspect but but yours it just packs everything into one yeah which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a it's a different way to do it. It just makes that one component a lot more complicated. It, it's flattening the hierarchy. Yeah, I think I would probably prefer it flat. Except then, yeah, you have to compose or like set up all these atomic underscore x miscellaneous components that they're never going to appear anywhere else. But you extract them out. I don't know. It also feels like overkill. But I guess at the implementation side, then you end up with a simpler table view cell. Like you don't have as many layers that are part of your Figma document that are going unused at any given time. Exactly, yeah. When you open that up to inspect what's inside of it or override things, it's not a slew of... <sighs> shit, you're right. I need to redo all my stuff. Damn it. <laughs> Did I just ruin your life? <laughs> you just ruined my entire system. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm much more... I, I much more prefer the swapping method than the hiding method. But all of this is an exercise in... Uh, moderation, right? If you go too overboard, and I'm very much guilty of this, I always go overboard in my organization. If you go overboard, uh, then it becomes harder to use. And if you go underboard, is that a term? If you don't go far enough with your organization, then everything kind of lives within one or two levels and it's hard to use too. So yeah, 
the, you know, it, it's a balance and you need to always be weighing that balance and probably readjusting, reformatting that balance as you go along and start adding yeah. things, which is yeah. why the Figma method of framing things rather than using slashes is so valuable. That's a great point and actually was something I wanted to just call out, which is like none of this should be considered static. I, I definitely over-engineered my system originally and I've gone back and revised it several times. I'm sure everybody listening understands that. Mm -hmm. You have to take the time to like revisit, is this being effective? Have I overcomplicated it? Am I missing the hierarchy that's needed to organize things effectively? And you just go through and redo your shit. Mm -hmm. And it uh, seems like I'm about to hit one of those points where I've both over-organized and under-organized. I've over-organized over my slash hierarchy of naming and under-organized my individual components with lots of hidden layers. Yeah. So shame on me. Uh, don't feel too bad. We're all guilty of it. <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't. I don't. Actually, this goes back further to my point of it's nice that I don't really have to give a shit about the quality of this because as long as the output mock is fine and clear enough, then we're going to be able to implement it and the implementation is what matters, right? Like mm -hmm. my end user, the person who uses the app that I design doesn't give a shit about how my Figma stuff is constructed where they do care about how fast it is. So mm -hmm. relative problems. But another designer picking up your file very much will care. Will hate me. Will yeah. hate me. <laughs> <laughs> or it will just take a lot of ramp up time to get them yeah. to understand the system. And I think that one of the goals of a good design system is one that is self-explanatory, like right. straightforward, semantic. So, but I think a good takeaway from this, and, and one of the reasons I keep mentioning the Apple library is that other people have solved this problem at a much larger scale than you or I will ever tackle. And learning from their choices and learning from the output that they've provided you for free in a Sketch or Figma library is hugely valuable. So just going through and looking at how other people have solved problems that you might be running into is is a good guide for a thing that is so innocuous as, say, a table view cell. Yeah, yeah. Great point. Yeah. Well, hopefully that was uh, a valuable episode there, Brian, talking about naming conventions. I, I could probably talk a lot longer about this stuff. I love this shit, but we only have so much time. Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should move on to cool things and save people's ears. If we missed anything on naming, sure we did. Let us know how do you name stuff. Tweet at us. Uh, send us screenshots of your component naming and how you're using slashes or how you're using nested frames. I'd be curious to see how everyone gets this set up. I, I will say one really frustrating thing to me is like swapping and inserting, I feel like is pretty tedious and slow. Like I shouldn't have to navigate through hierarchies of menus. And this is on the design tools to make this yep. feel a lot more fluid. Like if I think a component name, I should be able to hit a command to search for the component name and hit enter. And it places wherever my previous focus was. And I feel like the asset browser and the instance swapper in Figma just aren't there yet. So naming aside, there's still just like ergonomic issues of using any system that you've come up with. Well, if you're in Sketch, uh, I would highly recommend Sketch Runner. Yes, yes. It, it is great, not only for fuzzily searching for uh, component names, or I guess symbol names in Sketch, but also swapping out symbols with a mere keyboard shortcut. So you can select a symbol, do your keyboard shortcut to bring up runner, hold, I believe it's option, while you hit enter on the symbol that you want to swap in for it, and it will automatically switch them in place. Yeah. Really valuable. Yeah, that's nice. Jelly. <laughs>
All right, cool things. I'll go first. Okay, so this is a weird one. This is a this is an IRL cool thing, Brian. Okay. I don't know if I told you about this. I probably did. I think I did. You did. I'm, I'm looking ahead. You did tell me about it. Yeah. So um, recently, I was lamenting my old car. It's actually my fiance's car, but it had a really bad console, like a stereo system. With it had a touch screen, but it wasn't like a capacitive touch screen. It was one of those that had like it's actually like pressure based. Uh-huh. And I, I drive, I commute to work, so I spend a lot more time in the car lately. And I think my biggest problem was like I want a good interface experience in my car to interact with music and maps and stuff like that. I don't like having my phone mounted on the dash. I don't want to deal with a suction cup on my windshield. You know what I mean? We should get a car that has CarPlay. And I started looking around and, and eventually I realized like, wait a minute, you can just buy a, like aftermarket car stereo that has CarPlay in it. I didn't even like consider this as an option, Uh huh. Uh huh. but it's a thing you can do, Brian. And it's the thing I did. I, I went to Crutchfield dot com and actually it was really good it, it allows you to put in the make and model and year of your car and it'll tell you what parts will work with that car um, so i just went through a list of potential touchscreen carplay enabled stereos and picked one that i liked it was a reasonable price i don't know if you ever pulled a car stereo out of the dash of your car but it's a scary mess back there but yeah i was able to install it in the car and now I have an amazing commuting experience. I just plug my phone in and it automatically kicks into CarPlay. My map is right there. Uh, it works with my steering wheel controls. So changing volume and track and all that stuff, I don't even have to look. Oh, it's nice. outstanding. And I didn't even realize it was an option. So I figured I would share it as a cool thing. Aftermarket CarPlay stereos, huh? And and they and it's not just CarPlay. It's also, it also has uh, Android Auto. A lot of these have both of them installed on them. All you have to do is plug your phone in and it'll boot up the right one. So uh, even if you're not an iOS person, if you're an Android person, same, same deal goes for you. So aftermarket car stereos. Cool. Uh, mine is far less interesting. Um, it's a little old school, but I think people might get a kick out of it. Uh, let me throw this at you. Do you remember a product called Google Reader? I do very fondly, actually. Yeah. Rip, rip, rip. Rip, rip, rip. Following RSS feeds in the late 2000s was like what everybody did. That's how you kept up with shit happening on the internet is you would go to people's blogs find their RSS feed, add it to Google Reader. And Google Reader was like kind of the, a little bit different. But before Twitter is like the equivalent of reading Twitter. It's like, I want to go see what all my friends blogged about, right? Yeah, it was a personalized news feed. Yeah, it was wonderful. And then social media was invented. People started blogging less or they blogged on Medium and other areas where you didn't really need the RSS feed. You kind of had a curated homepage of people you followed. So Google Reader went the way of the dodo and is gone. But that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. There's a company that has made a product called Net Newswire, which is, I guess, old. They're on version five. Yeah. I'm just discovering them. So I'm on version five. And Net Newswire is a free and open source RSS reader for Mac. And it is a well executed Mac application that is native, it is fast. The keyboard input and gestures and navigation and everything are very intuitive. So it is well designed, which I feel like. This sounds horrible, but when you see like free and open source Mac software, you're like, oh, it's going to be shitty. This is like good. And there's nice ways to interact with everything. It's got great search and RSS input. It's got decent content rendering. 
so this is my cool thing. I've I've picked up my blog subscription habit, and I'm adding a bunch of sort of small independent writers and uh, a few like larger tech blogs and stuff just to keep track of stuff. But uh, I'm gonna try and spend a little more time here. I've been using this for the last few weeks, and it feels good. Uh, I guess my my broader cool thing here is like go follow some RSS feeds. Actually, speaking of which, let me do like one more small little self plug. Last week, I asked for people who are doing writing on a self-hosted website to tweet at me uh, what their website is. And I wanted to check out some personal websites. And I got a bunch of replies. It was awesome. So we'll have a link to that tweet in the show notes as well. Sweet. Cool sub thing. Look at that. Twofer. Nailed it. (laughs) All right. Are we done? Should we wrap? Let's wrap. Let's do it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this slightly longer uh, slightly more in the weeds episode of Design Details. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. If you're enjoying the show, please, we uh, would appreciate your support on Patreon, patreon.com slash design details. For just a buck a month, you can get a private RSS feed with sponsor free shows as well as access to bonus land content. Bonus land episode two came out last week, and you can check that out by going to patreon.com slash design details if you need more podcasts for your ears go to spec.fm that's our podcast network for designers and developers like you spec fm and the shows on there are produced and edited by sarah and drew and and sometimes me and sometimes marshall mark's getting in on that editing game and sometimes why and sometimes (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes why is making us sound smart Mm -hmm. thank you sarah and thank you drew and thank you marshall for putting in the work and making the episodes possible and uh, yeah thank you dear listener tweet at us we will be gracious to hear your thoughts and reactions as always Uh, until next week that's it bye bye Bye-bye. Very nice. That's how that one sounded. (laughs) My wife. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Borat jokes.